Hi, I'm Robin. And I'm Keldon. Welcome to Season 9 of Fly on the Wall. We're so excited to introduce you to this semester's class of GU Politics Fellows, including today's guest. Before we get started with the interview with Anatole Jenkins, make sure to follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also love hearing from you, so feel free to send a message to Fly on the Wall Pod cast at gmail.com. Anatole Jenkins is the former National Director of States Organizing for the Biden-Harris White House campaign and National Organizing Director for Kamala Harris. Anatole has a vast background in grassroots organizing and voter outreach, having worked for both President Obama's re-election campaign and Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Hey, Anatole. Welcome to the podcast. Our first question for you today is, how did you get into politics? Well, for starters, thank you for having me. Very, very excited to, to be here and also to be spending the semester with Georgetown students. My intro to politics was really through, ultimately through representation. I decided to get involved in politics in 2007, 2008 during the, during the Democratic nomination. It was the first time that I had ever saw someone in politics who, who, who I really saw myself in, which was Barack Obama. And, you know, people say all the time before Barack Obama being president or elected president or winning that nomination that they didn't think a black man could be president. Well, I can say I didn't even, it didn't even, you know, get to me to pose the question to myself. It was just, you know, kind of obvious that presidents have been white men and that's what it would be. And he kind of really threw away that notion of what a president was for me and allowed for me to sort of see that in myself. And really the entire Democratic nomination in and of itself, where you had a black man and a woman leading the charge to be the the, the nominee for a leading party, which was pretty incredible and really, really lucky to have come a political astuteness and of age during that time. And I really just decided um, then and there that I wanted to get involved in politics. I volunteered for that campaign. I decided to change my major in terms of what I was going to college to study and study politics and went to Catholic University here in D.C. And so, you know, I was very determined to get myself into the Obama world or orbit in some way. And I was able to land an internship with OFA, which was President Obama's political organization at the time. It's an amazing experience. Um, bar none, I felt like I was so empowered and was actually doing something that was contributing to the world and to, and to our country. And it was after the 2010 midterm where this organization was transitioning, transitioning to become the president's reelection campaign. And I'd interned there for you know, a year and a half, maybe two years at the time, just because I loved it so much. And I sat down with my boss um, and mentor at the time and told him I wanted to do whatever I could to make sure the president got reelected. And he gave me one of the best pieces of pieces of advice I had gotten at that point in my career and still really guides me to today. He said, you can come to Chicago and be my assistant or be some senior staffer's assistant and do the sexy thing that everyone thinks is a campaign. Or, but you already know how to do that. You've already been doing that for me for months already. Um, or you can go to Nevada and you can be an organizer and you can learn real leadership skills and you can feel what it means to actually make a difference on the ground. And so I went to Nevada and I haven't really looked back since in terms of organizing. Yeah, that's such an inspiring story. So we've seen a major surge in grassroots organizing and outreach in politics. 
As a grassroots organizer yourself, what effect do you think grassroots organizing strategies have had on our political landscape? Well, one thing that we know is that Democrats wouldn't win elections without organizing. You know, you see that at, you, you look at the most recent election in, 20, in 2020, where Joe Biden's victory, President Biden's victory in, in, in six battleground states really came down to one to three percentage points, which in campaign world we call a field margin. Um, only a field program and organizing program can deliver that one to two, um, one to three percentage points. You, you look at what happened in Georgia, where the organizing done there over years by registering voters just selected two groundbreaking candidates. But the thing about organizing is, is no victory exists in sort of a vacuum in and of itself, right? Generally speaking, you know, you looked at Senator Ossoff's and Warnock's victories. Those weren't simply because of the organizing their campaigns did or the work that was done alone in November and December of 2020. It was built upon the foundation of organizing that had happened for many, many years. And you look at the 2020 election where our campaign's organizing success wasn't exclusively ours. I'd say that it started right after the 2016 election with the Women's March, which you know then led to so much grassroots enthusiasm and energy for Democrats to take back the House in 2018. And there was just incredible organizing done then, which dovetailed right, dovetailed right into the 2020 primary on the Democratic side, right, where we had over 20 candidates organizing to try and win, which at that point, it's like there's a there, there's a candidate for everyone. And then we had organizations like Organizing Together 2020 and the Oric Corps with the DNC who did organizing in battleground states during that primary um, before it wrapped up because the primary calendar doesn't really align with general election battleground states. And all of that gave us really a huge foundation to, to do the organizing we needed in order to win and created really an enormous amount of energy for us to keep active and mobilize. And I'd say that since 2016 and with that grassroots organizing that happened, we've seen also an incredible thing happen in our politics that really has reshaped our country in a lot of ways, right? From looking at the historic Congress we elected in the 2018 elections that included you know, so many badass people like Lauren Underwood or AOC or Ayanna Presley, those wins were not, ex um, or those wins rather were exclusively because of grassroots organizing. I mean, just look at the waves that they've also made in politics since then. Thank you for that very detailed answer. Uh, our next question is, Democrats were successful in mobilizing voters in the Georgia Senate runoffs this past January. In fact, there is a higher voter turnout in the runoffs than in the presidential election which is definitely an uncommon feat. How do you keep up the democratic momentum? Yeah, I think it's I think it's actually pretty simple. You know, we have to give people a reason to be involved, an immediate reason, and we have to make it a priority to keep people active and engaged as a party. Um, earlier, I, or, or, you know, I, I sort of just mentioned the sequence of events, of organizing events um, post-2016 that led up to the 2020 election. We had the Women's March I mentioned. We had the first year of the Trump administration, which he was just throwing grenades at every corner, right? You, you, you saw the Muslim ban and um, the Affordable Care Act and the tax on that and immigration policy, and you can go on and on. And then we had the 2018 elections, the 2018 midterm elections. So there, right after that, we had the 2020 Democratic primaries. So all that to say, there was a reason to organize and to be engaged at sort of every every moment post-2016. And we have to do the same now. We have to organize to help President 
President Biden hold himself accountable, really, to the things that he he ran on and promised. Um, we have to organize and, and, and really recognize that we can't take for one second, we can't take it for granted, the work that we'll have to do in 2020. Too, and the work that need, needed to, that's needed to be done in order to both protect and expand our majorities in both houses of Congress and state legislatures and governorships across the country. And so we both have to give them, you know, an immediate issue and policy-based reason to organize around and electoral. And in addition to that, we have to, we, again, as a party, we have to make it a priority to keep all of those folks who we did engage in 2020 election and post-2016 to keep them active. Um, there were there, there was a historic number of people that we mobilized, and it, it is our duty to keep them engaged and active. And that means investing in resources and tools on the national and state level and with state parties to support their work and to give them tools to do the work that collectively we think we think is important as a party. And that means, you know, setting goals for that work to keep those folks active, engaged. And, you know, from that will stem the resources and the focus and the that really the strategic imperatives to get that job done. Thank you so much for that insight. So now switching gears um, to the um, most recent 2020 election cycle, um, you were involved with um, Kamala Harris for the people. So looking back, what do you look for in a presidential campaign and candidate? And how did that lead you to join her campaign? Great question. I yeah, I was the national organizing director for Kamala Harris's campaign. It was the honor of a lifetime. It was the best thing that I felt that I have um, have really done large part in my career thus far. Um, generally speaking, I've been lucky with candidates I've worked for. You know, it started with Barack Obama, as I mentioned, who just stole my heart away in 2008, and I was determined to work for him and to get him reelected in 2012, and then. We go to 2016 with Hillary Clinton, who I did not go into the 2016 campaign necessarily loving Hillary. I grew to love her each and every day on that campaign, though, and she is incredible. But she was the best option to protect President Obama's legacy and build upon that. And, you know, there was a stark contrast between her and Senator Sanders and the route they wanted to go in terms of expanding upon and building upon President Obama's legacy. And then for Vice President Harris, I'll say that it, it's very rare in politics that you get a candidate that you agree with from a policy perspective and there's just alignment there and that you just love as a person and that you fall in love with as a person. That's hard. But for me, that was that was important when deciding if I even wanted to do a presidential campaign who I would work for. And if for no other reason, I recognized that at that point in my career and likely the role that I'd be going into um, for that presidential campaign, I would have more access to the candidate than I'd ever had before. And I would see them at their best and I would see them at their worst. And I wanted to work for someone who, you know, if I saw them at their worst, I'd still want to show up to work the next day. And so that ultimately led me to, to, to then Senator Harris. I had seen her and interacted with her a bit at the DNC where I, when I was working at the DCCC in 2018, she helped us a lot to get that job done in terms of supporting our candidates and our organizing efforts. And I knew that she was someone who I would want to show up to work for even during the worst of times. During the Democratic primary, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden sometimes clashed on policy. And this was certainly most evident on the debate stage. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class 
to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. But as time went on, it seems like their relationship developed as they shared successes with one another. We did it. We did it, Joe. You're going to be the next president of the United States. <laughs> How do you think the relationship between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden evolved during the 2020 primary and election? Well, you mentioned the that that little girl was me moment and and that that moment made a lot of waves. In addition to that moment making a lot of waves, so did the t-shirt, which I just want to say that t-shirt was not planned beforehand. We just had an amazing rapid response team who were awesome and worked very quickly to get, which actually was a very simple shirt, just a photo of her on a, a shirt um, out as quickly as possible. But in terms of their relationship, look, I can't, I cannot speak for them, obviously, um, but I, I, I'd say, I'd say two things. First, President Biden is one of those politicians, one of those statesmen who rarely does anyone have a bad thing to say about him, right? Especially in Washington, especially in the Senate where he has friends, in the halls of Congress, outside of what we really see in partisan politics and Fox News or whatever, no one really has a bad thing to say about the guy. And I, I say that to say that conflict, which conflict, which I wouldn't even characterize their relationship at any point as conflict, but conflict, division, differences have never been something that 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 has seemed to be a hurdle with President Biden building relationships with someone. He's naturally empathetic. He naturally connects with people. You see it all the time. You see you saw it on the campaign trail. You saw it during his time as vice president. And so he, he, he naturally builds those relationships and division isn't something that, that, that is a hurdle that he can't overcome with building relationships. I'd also add, he ran for president many times before and has been on many, many of the debate stages. So even the differences of opinion and moments that, you know, that moment during the first debate about busing um, weren't entirely foreign to him, him coming up with conflict on the debate stage. It was a debate, you know, and he said himself, I believe, many times throughout the primary after that, that he didn't hold grudges. And that's true. We clearly saw that. Second thing I would say is they had a pre-existing relationship and that they've spoken about via the vice president's friendship with his late son, Bo. And I mean, we know this in our personal lives and interactions that breaking bread with people makes a huge difference in interacting with them and engaging with people in a personal, nonpartisan way makes a huge difference. I've experienced that here as a fellow at Georgetown, interacting with folks on the other side of the aisle. So without speaking for them, I think their relationship has developed quite naturally. And there has there was that one debate that everyone points to, but President Biden has been on many debate stage and has, hasn't really ever made an enemy. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us on that. So looking at the end of the election cycle, um, what did it feel like when the votes were counted when you realized that you'd won and run a successful campaign for um, Biden-Harris? It, that's a great question, man. No one has actually truly asked me that question before because of the way that the results sort of concluded themselves over the span of, uh, of five days. You know, on election day, it, it was a, a long night that carried into a long, again, five days. We get to Saturday and thing, at that point, I wasn't certain when it would have been called. I had been telling family and friends each and every day over those five days that I think it'll be soon, each and every day. 
But when it did get called, I, you know, I live here in D.C. and I decided to, to, to walk the streets and every block that I walked, just seeing everyone so happy and so jubilant and so carefree for the first time in what it seemed like four years. Every block, you know, my chest stood up a little, a, a, a little straighter and a little, a little higher. And I got a little bit more proud of the work that we did um, together, really, because it, again, was something that in my perspective was such a culmination of all of the work that we've done on the progressive side, organizing and really maintaining both sanity, um, motivation, um, grit throughout what was a hard four years. Turning back the clock a little bit, how did COVID change your organizing strategy and how difficult was it to adapt? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked because there were a lot of ways it changed our strategy, our strategy and there were a lot of ways that it actually didn't at all. For starters, from, from the get-go, the most important priority for us was the health and safety of our volunteers and staff. And we weren't going to put that in jeopardy at any turn. And so what has traditionally been the gold standard way to move a voter into organizing, which is a door knock or talking to someone in person. We had to, we had to really rethink that. Ultimately, realized, ultimately, we realized that what was truly most important, bar none, was having a meaningful conversation. And turns out you can have meaningful conversations without being in person. And so we put a premium on having meaning conver meaningful conversations with voters, utilizing a whole host of different means to actually reach them. We invested in a lot of other ways for volunteers to get involved and to reach out to voters, or, or, or rather I should say we, we, we truly doubled down on those things because truly all of those tools and all of those tactics that we use to organize remotely and to have those meaningful conversations in a safe and remote way, we were already doing. So, you know, there's this term in organizing called distributed organizing, which is a way of organizing people when you don't have necessarily an office on the ground or a staff on the ground. Um, and that was something that was already a part of what a lot of campaigns were doing in the primary on Kamala's campaign. That was truly our bread and butter because she was the senator from California, which is this massive liberal bastion of capacity um, that was that was really helpful for us. And but at the same time, we were we only invested staff and offices truly in our first four early states. And so we had to sort of build our organizing model based off of a way to allow for anyone to get involved, um, to be able to call and text voters in the most important states for us, which were those four early states, no matter where they were. And a lot of that was California. And that was a part of our model. That was a part of a lot of folks' model. And we really had to just double down on that. And that is to say it was not difficult to adapt, but it, it, it was something that we just had to double down on because it was already a component and a layer of our of our program. Now, some things did drastically change, right? We how we staffed up and what that staff looked like. You know, this was the first presidential campaign that had a digital organizing program at the size and the scope that ours was. It was a, a pretty enormous team that produced and accomplished way above their weight and um, but for example, we had digital organizing staff in all of our battleground states. In 2016, that was not a thing. I don't think that there was a digital organizing staffer in any battleground state. And there were maybe a handful of digital organizing staff in HQ and the campaign as a whole. So that changed. Training changed. Training became a, a, a not a bigger priority than it traditionally is because it's always, always a, a priority. But because of the distributed and the remote nature of how we organize 
so much of our training that happened for volunteers, um, it happened in a way for volunteers that wasn't done via an organizer to a volunteer, right? Um, because we organized in places where we didn't have any organizers. And this was the first time that happened. And so training, our training, we play a, a really a prominent role this cycle in figuring out how to both train our staff in a remote way, in a safe way, but also to train volunteers without a specific direct organizer, without being in person and on tools that some volunteers had never used before. And we had to, you know, each and every day focus on how we were also building community for our volunteers, because in organizing, people will come and volunteer for the candidate for the first time, but they'll come back for the relationships they build and the community they find in, in what typically is, is a campaign office. And so we had to rethink how do we build a relationship at, relationships with volunteers in the community um, in a way where in, in, in a similar way where people actually aren't congregating in, in person. But we also, again, had to ask, um, adapt also aspects of both the aspect of voting in COVID. And so both the fact that people would be casting ballots this year in ways that they had never before because of COVID, but also there was the fear and the lack of trust in certain voting methods in the systems because of the words of the former president and distrust in the postal service. And, and, and that's something I think that was hopefully unique to this cycle, but, but created hurdles that we had to rethink about our approach in terms of even talking about voting and, and, and the methods that, that people could cast their ballots. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing your reflections with us. So looking forward, how do you think field organizing will change after the pandemic? You know, I don't think that anything still can replace an in-person conversation with a voter or or the vibe in the community that is built around a, a field office or a can, campaign office. But ultimately, after the pandemic, I think organizing will continue to be as accessible as it is now for someone or anyone to get involved. Before, in order to volunteer, you had to go to a campaign office. And if it was a presidential campaign, I mean, best of luck if there's an actual campaign in your community, right? Which there aren't in a whole host of communities across the country. And unless that campaign had online tools for you to help out, which most didn't, there was, there, there was a bar barrier of engagement. And in organizing, you want to get rid of every barrier of engagement as possible. And I think we've made huge strides there. And if now if someone wants to get involved, I mean, go to your candidate's website. You probably can take action right now, certainly if they have a campaign that's near and that's and that's that's close by. I also think because of that, organizing post-pandemic will will also look a lot more sustained, meaning beforehand you had an election that people volunteered for. And after that, um, after they took that action, things stopped. The office shut down, the organizers left, et cetera. Well, because of the tools that allow for people to be involved without such huge ground infrastructure, um, which truly all states just don't have because of resources and money, you know, those things are not unlimited. Um, don't in, in some places also don't even have the priorities for organizing at certain points because there's possibly no election happening. The state legislature isn't in section, et cetera. You know, now if I live in California, but say, for example, the control of the U.S. Senate hinges on the Georgia Senate runoff. So I want to help out there a bit. I can. You know, it's a lot more accessible for me to be involved. The barrier of entry has been lowered, and that's something that we have to maintain. 
Okay, now on to the lightning round, where we ask quick questions and get quick answers. Are you ready? Okay, I'm nervous, but I'm ready. What is your favorite pandemic pastime? Walks. I take a lot more walks now outside, which anyone who has worked on a campaign with me, they know that I am the person who's on the phone talking loudly, roaming and walking around. I take that outside now, which has been helpful. Also a big fan of pandemic walks myself. Um, Second question, what song is stuck in your head right now? Oh, man. Wow. What song is stuck in my head? You know, that's a hard one. I don't. No, because I've been doing a lot more reading lately than I have actually listening to music since I haven't had much of a commute. So what's song? I mean, I generally anything Beyonce is is always in the back of my head and that's easy. But I've been doing a lot more reading than listening to music lately. That's actually the perfect segue into our last question. What's the best book that you've read? The best book? Oh, that that that's a hard one. Um. I don't know if I can choose a best book, but I'd give a book that I highly recommend everyone read. It, it is a, a a biography of the great labor activist Cesar Chavez that came out, I think, in two thousand in two thousand fourteen or fifteen. It's called The Crusades of Cesar Chavez, and it's by Miriam Powell, is I think how you say her name, and it's it's about his life and how he organized and how he led his union, the United Farmers Workers, and brought field workers together against you know, fierce opposition. And there are a lot of just lessons to learn in his life and his story about organizing, about leadership, about collective power, about how we all can make a difference. All right. Thank you so much. I'll be sure to check that book out. So that's the end of our interview today. Thank you so much, Anatole, for joining us virtually to have this quick conversation with us about what it looks like to organize um, today. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm very, very excited to be on campus this semester. And hopefully we'll see many of my listeners at our discussion groups on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. If you want to hear more from Anatole, make sure you register for his GU Politics discussion groups, Organizing in 2020, Lessons Learned for the Road Ahead, on Thursdays from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Make sure to check out the GU Politics newsletter for the sign-up link or Google GU Politics Discussion Group. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.